Hello, this is Michael Farragher from Between the Borders, and today I want to talk to you about Q-Sites. Uh, if you've read The American Insurgent, you know that I have a disproportionate love uh, for Q-Sites. They are part of a military deception program put on by the British during World War II, and as such is actually, uh, it's literally textbook for the point of military deception and why you need to understand the both logical and technical aspects of your opposition to actually uh, deceive them. I first became aware of the Q sites during one of my courses when I was going to turn in a uh, once you get to a certain level they don't want you wasting time on papers so you have to generally get in and tell them this is what I'm going to be doing over the next several months you know, uh, what do you think? My trainer came back and said, no, th this is pretty weak. But you might want to take a look into Q-Sites. Uh, so I did. I grabbed a couple of books on it, and I was not disappointed at all. Uh, it's a thoroughly enjoyable read, and while there isn't a terrible amount of information out there, it, there's enough for you to really wrap your head around what they did and what they were trying to do. Before we discuss what a Q-Site is, we need to take a step back, and we need to take a look at what was going on during World War II, both with the actors and the equipment at the time. The Germans were bombing the English in what would be called the Battle of Britain and their finest hour. And what that meant is Germany was sending across bombers relentlessly uh, to decimate the civilian population of Britain. Eventually they switched over to uh, autonomous V1 and V2 rockets, but initially it was all done via uh, standard bombing campaigns. And there are two major ways of dropping bombs on a civilian target. Now, the first is to do so in a daylight raid, and the second is at night. At the time, daylight raids were incredibly dangerous. The defenders could see you quite clearly. Radar was in its infancy. There were no radar-guided missiles or anti-aircraft sites. But they did have uh, the ability to physically see the aircraft. And during the day, you absolutely could see a bomber coming from literally miles away. And that meant that any low-altitude runs were at severe risk, even if there was no fighter cover and there was as much fighter covers uh, Britain could put together. And the alternative for a daylight raid is to drop ordnance from a much higher altitude. And while this eventually would be the case, they did not have adequate bombsight to actually hit a target properly. Well, it's not too hard to hit a city as a whole. Generally speaking, for precision work or anything worthwhile, you needed something a little more a little more effective. That's why the Norden bomb site in the B-17 was such a major step forward. And the Germans figured this out, but they figured it out in a way where they didn't have to deal with daylight raids. At night, without any additional equipment, you have a very, very hard time hitting a target. And at the time, this requires a little bit more technical knowledge as well, but at the time, a lot of their radio beacons, a lot of their systems were all uh, very low frequency, comparatively speaking. These days we have 
you know, uh, uh, gigahertz uh, microwave stuff. And this works very well with a very small antenna. When you're talking low frequencies like kilohertz or uh, between, say, 1 and 100 megahertz, you start to have very large antennas, particularly if you need multiple arrays of antennas in order to determine direction. This meant that most night fighters, uh, radar-based systems, radio-guided systems, all required enough hardware that the system carrying it, the aircraft carrying it, didn't actually perform that well as a bomber anymore, or as a fighter. That meant usually you had uh, a limited number of aircraft equipped with this system, and everyone else in the formation fired on their, fired on their target, fired on their command. That system worked very well. The major problem is you had a single aircraft that if you could fool the equipment, you could fool the entire formation. But more than that, if you managed to fool the formation uh, as to what the target was, then nobody could back it up except the single aircraft, which is already far outside of uh, a helpful range. The German systems relied on that single radar, I'm sorry, radio direction finding equipped aircraft to stay on a beam. Because you'd have uh, the Germans actually broadcasting a beam, a radio beam, over the target. And all that aircraft did was have to ride the beam. But that doesn't really tell you where the target is. So they started having a second a uh, second beam that would indicate where you would end up dropping the uh, dropping the ordnance. It's basically like drawing an X over uh, over any given target. You would ride one leg in, and when you met the second leg, you drop the ordnance. Unfortunately, that didn't help for actually getting things on target because there was a delay between dropping the ordnance and hitting the ground. Uh, you had to know when to open the bomb bays, you had to do a number of things, and you had to adjust for your own forward velocity. Now, aircraft cannot measure ground speed in this era. They can measure airspeed, but the air is moving differently than the ground is. The Germans solved this in a remarkably intelligent way. They had three beams uh, set up like a double cross, or maybe an F you would ride the main leg in. And when you hit the first leg, uh, a timer would start. You'd open the bomb bay and get ready to go. When you hit the second leg, that would have been X number of miles apart, whatever the distance is. And then the timer would start counting down backwards because the target was that same distance away. So when the timer hit zero, you would know you traveled the same distance and it would drop the ordinance automatically. It was a remarkable system. And it actually worked out very, very well. What they would do is they would drop, amongst other things, firebombs, because these were night raids. Once you set a large section of a city on fire, the other bombers could use daytime equipment to detect the fire and drop ordnance directly on top of it. In that way, they managed to get multiple waves of bombers in a formation to fire upon a single target. And those waves could be minutes or even hours apart. They dropped their ordnance on the fire, and that's all the equipment they needed. Armed with this information, uh, the British uh, began constructing 
uh, sites and going through projects, which would eventually culminate in Q sites. There's also QF and various other sites. I'm going to group them all together. Uh, once again, I go over all of this in uh, different detail in the American Insurgent. Uh, plus, I do cite the sources, so if you're looking for more information, you can dig through there. But what they did is they constructed uh, sites that would burn like a city. Uh, metal and concrete square towers that would have controlled pitch fires that would look like a burning building, but really have no major damage. Uh, they would have just troughs of fire, this, that, the other thing, and it would simulate a burning building on the line of approach, but far enough away from the major cities that it wouldn't do any damage. They'd set this up in a farm field, and thus the German uh, bombers would see these burning targets, and they would think, this is, uh, this is where the target is. This is where I'm going to drop my ordnance. And by doing so, in the glib way I keep describing it, uh, they saved London by setting fire to Coventry. By doing this, they had something like 30 to 40% of all ordnance heading towards London and other major metropolitan areas dropped in a farm field. And I cannot begin to tell you the number of lives that this potentially saved. Uh, Firebombs, they're, they're massive things, but the reason why they spaced these attacks out is they'd have a firebomb, which would start the fire. They'd hit the area with high explosives. That would break apart buildings and demolish the area. They'd wait a little bit, they'd drop more fire. Now all these broken things, all this splintered wood everywhere, that starts on fire. And then they'd wait a while and they'd drop high explosives again. That means the firefighters who came out to fight these fires and to save lives are killed in the resulting blast. It was a constant and deliberate campaign to do as much damage as possible. By delaying... Uh, these attacks, by mitigating follow-up attacks, not only are you saving the ordinance that would hit the city, but you're saving the responders. You're giving people the ability to get out of harm's way, to save other people and other property that would otherwise be targets to these uh, staggered attacks that are designed expressly to kill the people who are attempting to mitigate the damage. I don't want to uh, normalize these kinds of attacks. It was... Uh, it was total war. It's a different thing altogether. I, I hope we never see it again. You know, knock on wood. But you can see from both sides that their understanding of the complete process allowed them to either deceive the enemy or understand how to most hurt the enemy. The Q sites defended by knowing what the German system was by finding a weakness and deceiving them as to where the system is going. Uh, similarly, the Germans understood that after an attack, uh, any sort of damage would be easier to set on fire. Uh, firefighters would be in the region. So all you have to do is keep pounding the same area over and over and let the uncertainty in your own accuracy work for you. Uh, this, this system worked unfortunately well. Uh, but thankfully, between the efforts of the RAF and the Q sites, Britain managed to hold on until finally uh, they basically had effectively won the Battle of Britain simply by uh, enduring. And that's <laughs> if that's all you can do, if all you can do is endure, I'm 
behind you. But that's not uh, it's not the attrition that I ever want to see any friendly ever go through again. Uh, it is also worth noting that this is the infancy of camouflage and deception. The English also decided to uh, begin mixing up their uniforms uh, to wear different colors on different parts before actually adopting a camouflage pattern uh, because it was harder to see people if there wasn't a human silhouette of a single color somewhere. Even if it was sort of an olive drab color, a single human silhouette is still a human silhouette. They also did things with disguising outposts as trees and various other things. But while I have some time here, the other part that I really enjoyed from the deception was they were doing uh, deception, what they call order of battle. Order of battle is where you take a look at the opposition and determine who is there, uh, what units are there. It's why in a lot of old movies you see people, you know, taking off unit patches, this, that, the other thing. The important thing is you need to understand the enemy. Once again, understand the enemy to understand what's going on. Are they an engineering unit? Are they a support unit? Are they a special forces unit? Once you know what unit they are, you can start determining how many people are there, what their roles are, what their support expectations are. And the, the same group that did these, uh, these Q sites came up with a bunch of great ideas, including paper mache heads. They had paper mache heads. They'd pop up out of trenches and such, and whoop. There they go. Also in World War One, they were doing this sort of deal. Uh, but they pop heads out of trenches and whoop. Whether or not it was shot, who cares? You know, it was just a head. But they would have, uh, they'd have them dressed like uh, sick, like Indians, like all sorts of people from the reaches of the Empire. And that would confuse the enemy as to where these units were coming from, where they were pulling these troops from. And just that little bit of confusion was very, very worthwhile. We saw a bit of this uh, back during, uh, not during Euromaidan, but during the uh, Ukrainian Civil War, the early days of it. Uh, we saw a lot of, say, the Russian insurgency-trained troops, not counterinsurgency, insurgency troops, moving up along the roadways from their bases towards uh, Ukraine. And this gives you an indication of what their role is. Uh, when you mobilize an infantry company, mobilize an infantry company. When you mobilize anti-aircraft, you expect the enemy to have aircraft. You always have to know what the opposition is doing so you have a good eye for how you can counter it. And that really comes around to the beauty of the Q-Site. The Q-Site had an acute and very precise knowledge of enemy tactics and capabilities and leveraged it to basically a pile of coal saving thousands of lives because you understood they were going to drop the ordnance there. I mean, something like 30 to 40 percent of ordnance was dropped there. That, that's the equivalent of shooting down dozens of bombers a day. And they did it just through knowing how the enemy's operations worked. And it's that sort of brilliance that really just sort of underscored the criticality of not just total war being, you know, uh, any target, but rather total war meaning uh, any opportunity to 
defend yourself any opportunity to reduce the effectiveness of the enemy. And that I can always get behind. Uh, so long as you are... If you are not costing lives, if you are not destroying uh, entire cities, if you're not ruining the future in order to protect your own, I'm 100% behind whatever you need to do to protect yourself. And they found beautiful ways of doing this. I, I literally could just talk in circles on Q sites all day. They are amazing. I love them. But really, I think I've said a lot I can deliver for you today. So, I'd like to thank you once again. Uh, this is Michael Farragher from Between the Borders. Uh, we do have our podcasts up on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. We're trying to go for a longer format. This one's sort of an intermediate. Uh, let me know how you like it. It's about twice as long as the short formats, about half as long as the longer formats. Uh, we do have our Facebook presence. We have a Patreon account if you're so inclined. You can always reach us at BetweenTheBorders.com. And if you have any questions, any thoughts for future production, please let us know. Uh, I'd like to thank you once again for joining us, and stay safe.